Welcome to the latest podcast from Knowledge on the Nordics, which is the first of two podcasts on the Maritime Nordics, with me, Nicola Whitcomb, editor of Nordics Info, a research dissemination website based at Aarhus University in Denmark. In this first podcast, we will be looking at why the Nordic countries see themselves as maritime nations and compare them with a couple of other countries. To help me to do this, I have two guests. My first guest is Aneda Skolstil Henson, who is an associate professor in global history here at Aarhus University's School for Culture and Society. Aneda speaks many languages and has lived in Israel, Japan, the US and Denmark, where she is from originally. It's often said that Denmark is a maritime nation. And I sometimes wonder, what, what does that mean exactly? Aren't, isn't every country that isn't landlocked in some way a maritime nation? Um, but could you tell us what it means in, in your view? Yes. My PhD was about nation building in the 1800s. And I think it has a lot to do with sort of the definitions of a country's narrative. The idea is to isolate it or, or to, to explain it as if it's something unique. And for Denmark, um, the sort of the challenge of the competition has rather been between two narratives, either the, the agricultural nation or the maritime nation. I mean, in Denmark, you're never more than 100 kilometers from, from the coast. So what you see is that a lot of villages on the coast, but also a little inland, you will have people in the same village. Some families will be seafarers. And other families will be involved in agriculture. But, but and of course, there have been intermarriages and intermingling. But there's also very much sort of these two distinct stories um, that are then used in different contexts. And I think the maritime nation of Denmark has to do with um, going back to the Vikings. <laughs> so it's, again, the national narrative of the Vikings, the skills they had that they could build ships that could actually travel across the Atlantic, uh, also in terms of actually sailing or having a boat or things like that. Um, but it also has to do with that a whole segment of the population have been used to that the fathers of the families were gone, brothers, for two years at a time, typically. Uh, many of them actually went on boats or ships out of, of Hamburg, for example, uh, for example, or Bremen. Uh, so they were trained on Römer or other islands, but then they were actually working out of, of, of German port cities, and they returned after two years and were with the family maybe six months or something like that, and then they were gone again. So, of course, that also affects the family structure and family life, uh, the, the, the role of the women in these families. So there's a lot of things where I think it, it, it has affected also many Danish families, but not all, because then there is the other the other Denmark, which is the agricultural nation, where, of course, the families all work on the same farm and they're always all there. What it also means to me is the connections that these people have made to the rest of the world, not necessarily as Danish or as the Danish ships, but rather that these individuals have interacted with people from all over and in all these places throughout the world. Presumably the same could be said of one or, or more or all of the Nordic nations. Could you comment on, on that? Yes. I think that is exactly what I meant by in the 1800s. It was so important for Denmark, Sweden and Norway to create these 
more or less disconnected stories. I mean, whether it was competition of who were the true Vikings or whether it's, it's yeah, who's more a maritime nation. Uh, but I think for the Nordic countries, uh, certainly it has been a way uh, to connect to the world. I mean, they are comparatively comparatively small countries, but through their seafarers, through their captains, through their shipping companies, they have made links to the rest of the world. And Maersk, as the largest shipping company in the world, obviously has also profited. Uh, yeah, so I guess it also explains, you know, that even though you've got this sort of link to a particular nation, which shows the sort of uh, effects of globalization in some ways. Yeah. And I think that is actually really crucial also in terms of it's so not national. I mean, it, it, the, the shipping line stories have been told as national stories, but it's very hard to keep them isolated because whether it's the seafarers on the ships or whether it's the trading goods or the lines, what ports they actually, what port calls they have, they are seldomly tied to one particular nation. So that was a useful perspective from Denmark and a global historian. Let's now go to Helsinki and hear from Ellen Eftestol, who is a professor of civil and commercial law at Helsinki University and also at the Scandinavian Institute of Maritime Law at the University of Oslo. She's a truly Nordic citizen, originally from Norway. She has lived in Denmark and most of her adult life in Finland. Do you see Finland as a maritime nation? And, you know, what does it mean to be a maritime nation? Aren't all Nordic countries maritime nations? Mm, that's, that's, I think that's a good question. And I think it's absolutely relevant. And I'm no doubt uh, about the fact that Denmark and Norway probably identify themselves more as shipping nations, if you emphasize shipping. Uh, than Finland and and Sweden. Um, if you look at at maritime related industries, uh, it's about shipbuilding. It's about carriage of passengers and freight, uh, but it, it's also fishing, for example, which all of them have. But at least you could say that all of them are are maritime based countries. So, for example, Finland would not function without maritime carriage because it's almost on an island and this applies to Iceland even more. Um, so the maritime industry in its diversity is applicable uh, or kind of relevant to all the Nordic countries. We are countries by the sea. We have long traditions with the Vikings, uh, which I think that everyone relates to. So I think that uh, this is relevant for, for all Nordic countries. But then if you go into how we should govern and, and what interests should be emphasized, I think there are differences within the Nordic countries, of course. So it seems that individually the Nordic countries may see themselves as maritime nations for a variety of reasons, but they can also be seen as a maritime region. I wondered whether legal structures on a national, EU, Nordic or international level affect this. So I asked Ellen to contextualise the legal position for me. Some Nordic 
countries are members of the uh, of members of the European Union, and some, some are not. But we've got these different levels. You know, we've got the national level, European level, the international level. Um, where does the Nordic level fit into that? In an international context, we talk about the Nordic legal family, uh, and in sim and that means that we have um, very similar systems. Of course, we have details that differs, but we're approaching law in the same way. Um, and particularly in the area of civil law, we can talk about um, Nordic, a Nordic legal system in a way, which is then something in between the common law and the civil law countries. When we make new laws, we try to collaborate, uh, but the collaboration is really um, not very formal. It's so that the ministries meet and try to prepare the laws together. And then um, we will have a text with the same wording that is then taken back to the national parliaments and there they are decided. So, and, and, and the collaboration is only kind of a goodwill that we would like uh, to develop our legal rules in this area in the same direction. And you can also see it in the Supreme Court's decisions. If they are, have a case with, which has this Nordic background, uh, they can easily say that, well, this solution sounds good. And I would also like to point out that the Norwegian Supreme Court did this and the Danish Supreme Court did that. And of course, they are not bound formally by this, but it is an, an important argument because one of the one of the um, ideas behind the legislation that they in, are interpreting is then to, to harmonize the legal system. So we would try to have the same rules. But of course there are differences in details, but at large, this is how the Nordic system works. And then of course if you go one level up to the regional, the European level, there are some Nordic countries are member states like Finland, Sweden and Denmark and then Iceland and Norway only have an EEA agreement, which means that uh, we are part of the inner market and have accepted that the rules there apply to us as well, but we are not fully members. So it means that we're not part of the legislative process within the EU, we just have to accept what we get from the EU. But on the other hand, we then have certain exemptions that are important uh, to us and for Norway, that is, for example, that agriculture is outside. Petroleum area is outside, fishery is outside. So for these important um, areas, uh, the Norwegians decide themselves. And I think that fishery was also very important for Iceland. The, um, the Nordic countries will collaborate even when implementing rules from the EU. So what's interesting, you use the word harmonize. Is it written anywhere? You say that the, the, the process of, um, you know, the ministers discussing and so on and so forth. Is it because, is it kind of like an un, unwritten rule that they do that? Or is it actually set out in some sort of, a treaty or agreement that they have to do that? 
Uh, do you mean on the Nordic level or on the Nordic level? On the Nordic level, uh, yeah, there is um, uh, an agreement, a loosely agreement uh, that they should do it in in mm. in the area of contract law, at least the Nordics. But it's not related to the EU. It's related to the general obligation of collaborating, but it's mm. not very binding. It's it is more about the goodwill. Um, mm. I just think it's I just think it's fascinating that you know probably uh most of the nordic population would be content with harmonizing when it's on a nordic level mm. but if you take it onto an eu level they 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 feel as though that their sovereignty is being taken away it's it's would that would that be a fair assessment do you think or maybe that's just my my viewpoint of what you're saying yeah i don't really know about how this mm. is accepted but i, I think mm. you are right that there is uh, there is uh, the nordic nobody questions the nordic collaboration because i think it's also because uh, it is a collaboration it's not something that you have to do we do it because we would like to do it and we agree on the content of the rules and if we cannot agree we don't comply is based on 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 uh, it, it's not obligatory and and, and i think that yeah. makes it a difference that but makes it more um you know motivating to do it in in a way in a way but otherwise i would say that i mean within the eu the main idea between it in the eu is to harmonize the rules mm. to mm. in the market and so this is the how law is used as a policy instrument in a way and in the within the nordics we have had this for many centuries you know 100 years back that we trade with each other and we would like to keep the rules as similar as possible to make it easier on the parties that move around within the nordic countries and but this has been done on um, on um, uh, with no obligations but the I, the EU is based on the same idea. It is, it's yes. Just it's much a much closer, uh, and 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 of course uh, there are more obligations if the EU decides, then you have to follow mostly. So perhaps even though nations individually like to see themselves as maritime nations, this overlooks the fact that the Nordic countries are intrinsically linked through history and trade and so on. And of course, that also applies to the European and international level. That's also why it seems somewhat of a misnomer to talk about maritime nations, because the maritime industry and links to the sea generally is what intimately connects countries to one another. Both Aneda and Ellen mentioned how the Nordic nations identify with the seafaring Vikings as part of their maritime history and identity. Another perhaps often overlooked aspect of the Nordics as maritime nations is its colonialism. Ghana was a Danish colonial outpost during the slave trade, and since its independence in 1957, it has had an ongoing special relationship with Denmark through trade and aid. Eneda leads a transdisciplinary research group called PEP2, investigating port effectiveness and public-private cooperation for a competitive port in Ghana. Could you briefly outline the, um, the historical links between Denmark and Ghana for us? Uh, 
there's a, a longer history, uh, back to 1658 at least, uh, where uh, Denmark um, captured uh, a Swedish-built um, castle on the coast of what was then not called Ghana, but of the Gold Coast. So, so, so there's the, the sort of the slave trade um, aspect of the relationship, which I think actually is more important to the Danes in terms of also when the Queen was visiting with a lot of people uh, in uh, November of 2017. One of the things that the Danish foreign minister was stressing was apologies for the slave trade. And the reaction from the foreign minister of Ghana was, well, of course, we shouldn't forget history, but let's talk about some some decent trade uh, agreements. And that so has really been the from challenge. The, really from the off, they've been very clear that they want trade rather than aid. Yes. Okay. And that has not, they didn't succeed in that, achieving that till actually just 2020 uh, in terms of Denmark, because until then, uh, Denmark was mainly or also there uh, with Danida. And Danida is the inter- international, would, man, would one call it the international development um, agency, department yes. or agency? Yeah, the Danish yeah. in- International Development Agency. Through the missionaries, through uh, the colonial activities, um, and not least through Danida. I think there is cer- certainly these personal ties uh, to Ghana. There's a very, very big uh, Ghana friendship uh, community here, in both in Aarhus, but in Denmark in general. Uh, there's been a lot of aid projects of various kinds um, and NGOs uh, also still in Ghana. So we sort of talked about Denmark and the Nordic nations. If we take the sort of maritime nation lens, could the same be said of of Ghana? Historically, I mean, Ghana was absolutely not, or the people living in what today is Ghana had no interest in the ocean. They were oriented towards the north, towards Sahara, and all trade was through uh, further north. So, so in that sense, it's absolutely not a maritime nation. Uh, there are lots of fishermen, and today, or since the the 1950s, 60s, a lot of uh, Ghanaians have been trained as seafarers, so they're actually very famous for very good seafarer schools, and the Regional Maritime University for all of West, English-speaking, so Anglophone uh, West Africa, is located in uh, Nungua, but very close to Tema in Ghana. Also the Black Star Shipping Line, which um, existed from 1957, a Ghanaian national shipping line, from 1957 to 1997. So the maritime aspect of the Nordic nations is both a national and a regional narrative, but it's also inextricably linked with its relationship to other countries around the world. This was recently underlined by the introductory speech of the current Japanese ambassador to Denmark at a research event held here at Aarhus University and organised by ANEDA and the Japan Alumni and Researcher Assembly and the Japanese Society for the Promotion of Science Stockholm office. Yes, uh, both Japan and Denmark are the maritime uh, nations, and our exchanges were initially uh, starting by our ancestors who crossed the oceans. Back in 1846, uh, 1867, uh, the Treaty for Friendship commerce and navigation was concluded. And in, for more than 150 years, Denmark and Japan have deepened uh, friendship relations through oceans. And uh, as we are the trading partners, and most recently, 
Japan EU economic uh, partnership agreement was effectuated in 2019. And of course, nowadays, when we travel between Denmark and Japan, we more often use uh, airplane. Uh, however, when it comes to the transportation of uh, natural resources, of foods, cars, offshore wind uh, generators, parts, and so on and so forth, uh, we still heavily rely on the maritime transportation. Uh, maritime trade is crucial for Denmark and Japan. Uh, that is why both countries firmly believe uh, that um, uh, uh, freedom of navigation and uh, rule of law in ocean is very much important. Uh, we closely collaborate in making and executing international laws regarding oceans, such as the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, the rules of uh, international maritime organization, and so on and so forth. And Japan do, does appreciate uh, the latest Denmark's as well as the EU's very positive approach to the free and open Indo-Pacific which ensures such important principles for our ocean uh, from Pacific via Indian Ocean to Middle East to Africa. Most recently, when uh, Foreign Minister Yep Kofod met Foreign Minister Hayashi Yoshimasa in Tokyo uh, November last year, uh, they reaffirmed the importance of such cooperation. So to sum up then, the maritime aspects of trade, travel and identity and lots of other things are really important to the Nordic nations. But this does not necessarily seem to mean that they are very different from other nations around the world. If anything, it suggests that this is what links them to other countries. I'll give the last word to Ellen and Enedu. So who governs what and with what tools? This is what makes it so interesting. Of course, it can be told as a national history. It makes more sense as a global history to me, mm. uh, because whether it's the Danish history or the Swedish or the Finnish or the Norwegian, or whether it's the American or the British or the Ghanaian or the Japanese, I mean, there are so many interconnections. I don't see that these narratives can be told without the disruptions of the others. You've been listening to the Nordics as Maritime Nations with me, Nicola Whitcomb, editor of Nordics Info, and my two guests, Anida Skolstil Hansen and Ellen Abeltoft. You can find out about their research and all the projects that they're involved with if you go to our website, Nordics Info. It was recorded in April and May 2022 at Aarhus University in Denmark and over Zoom and is part of Knowledge on the Nordic series called An Evolving World, Conversations on Norden. It is the first of two podcasts, the second one being The Nordics, Shipping and the Climate. Go to our website, Nordics Info, to check out the other podcasts in the series, including those on Nordic history, the Nordic model, television and geopolitics, and many more. This podcast was produced by the team behind the research dissemination website Nordics Info, which is based at Aarhus University in Denmark. Thanks go to the researchers Eneda and Ellen, the Japanese embassy in Denmark, 
the Japanese Society for the Promotion of Science Stockholm Office, Tokai University European Centre, and our own university hub, Reimagining Norden in an Evolving World. Thanks also go to our sponsors, Nordforsk.